for how magnificent and how great you are in our lives. Lord, we, we've come hungry today. We've come hungry, Lord. And if there's anyone here that's not hungry, Lord, I pray that you make them hungry. Make them hungry for your word, hungry for your truth, hungry for your word, hungry for your Holy Spirit. Let them, thir- let them be thirsty. Show them their need, God. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time now. We thank you for this morning worship. And Lord, we pray that just, but by the power of your spirit, you just continue, continue to minister to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Children are dismissed to Children's Church. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Rick will give you a Bible. Right there. Right there, Rick. All right. Good deal. Turn in your Bibles this morning to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. We'll be going through the... uh, entire chapter this morning, and the title of my message is A Church Impacted by Grace. What is the impact of God's grace on the body of Christ when a people come face to face with their God and they are changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, when they are changed by that, what we like to sing about, God's amazing grace. You know, grace transforms it transforms us, it changes us, and it impacts us mightily. I want you to, um, I'll be teaching this morning in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. But let's go back and look at chapter 1 and look at verse 10. I want to show you the power of grace. The, the power of God's grace in a body of believers. In Titus chapter 1 that we looked at last week, look at what he says in verse 10. He says, for there are many rebellious men. Empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, says, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Look what he says in the opening of verse 13. He says, this testimony is true. These Along with you and me, at least I know I was, these are the the wretched. These are the deplorables. These are people that are outcasts and who don't have it together. And they're lost in the mire of sin. Now, let's move forward as we're going verse by verse through uh, chapter 2. Look at what he says at the end of chapter 2. Look at verse 14. Because in chapter 1 we saw last week, Paul made it very clear that he was talking about people within the body. All the, all the ungodliness and evil and sin. But look at what he says in verse 14 of chapter 2. He says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. My friend, he's talking about the same folks. He's talking about these people that were deplorables, they were wretched, they were sinners. And God completely transforms them into his, what does he say in, in chapter 2? His own possession. My friend, that is the power of grace. And we're going to see as we study chapter 2, verse by verse, the, the impact that grace has upon the church. That's what I want to talk to you this morning, about the, the, uh, the, the power of grace. The power of grace. 
So let's pray, and then we'll get into it verse by verse. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, challenge us, encourage us, and, and, and uh, fill our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A church impacted by grace. Grace comes in. The Holy Spirit comes in. Godly leadership comes in. And let's see what happens. Chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. I want to stop right there. The very first impact that grace has in the church and the power of the Holy Spirit has in the church is a pastor who wants to teach. And not just teach anything, but he wants to teach the word. He, he wants to teach the word. He understands the value of the word of God in the local church. Psalms chapter 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect in converting the soul. It's God's word that transforms us and changes us. And the first thing that God will do in a church is he will give them a pastor with a zeal and a fire to challenge the people with the word of God. And he's following the instructions of, of verse 1 right there where, where Paul, says to, uh, Paul says to Titus, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. What's he talking about? He's talking about teaching the word. He's talking about just opening the Bible and teaching the word and letting God's word do its job. Charles Spurgeon said, the, the word of God is like a cage and a lion. Just open the cage and the lion will come out and he'll do his thing. And then we're following other promise, other uh, directions in scripture. 2 Timothy 4.2 says, this is instruction to all pastors. It says, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instructions. So the first thing that the Holy Spirit and the grace of God does in the church, he gives them a pastor with a zeal to teach, to, to, to teach the word. And 2 Timothy 4.2, it says, says the preacher is to preach it in season and out of season. What does that mean, in season and out of season? That means do it always. Do it always and just, and just let the word of God do its job. So that's the first impact. You know, I, I, like, I like sermon points, and I like to give y'all points to go home with. And I was preparing my message this week, and I was looking at a church impacted by grace. I counted over 30 sermon points. So I was not going to drag y'all through 30 sermon points. But what I am going to do is when we get to the last four verses of this chapter, I believe those are the most important impacts that the grace of God has on the church. And I'll share those with you. But there is just, this whole chapter is just filled with, with sermon points, with application for everyday living of what the grace of God wants to do in our life. So let's, let's look at verse 2. Verse 2, I like this. He starts it off with older men. As we get into verses 2 and 3, uh, Paul's going to address older men and older women. And let me just say this off the get-go. We love our older men. We love our older women. You are a gem. You are a, a precious jewel within the church. You are instruments of grace to the younger generation. I recently read an article that just came out a couple weeks ago about this church in Minnesota that, that asked all their senior citizens to leave the church. Can I just say that's stupid? <laughs> and very ignorant? We need you. We need our senior citizens. You know, 
they, God uses them greatly to mold the next generation, to mold the next generation of believers. I want to share with you, maybe you're like, well, am I older or am I younger? Am I in the older generation or am I in the younger generation? You may be asking that question. Well, I want to share this with you. How to know you're getting older or you're in the older generation? Here it goes. Number one, you know you're getting older when your kids study things in history you studied in current events. You know you're older when you go to the barber and he or she says, why? When you find TV ads for hemorrhoidal cream, interesting. When, you try to, when, you, when your kids try to count the candles on your birthday cake but are driven back by the heat, you know you're getting older. Number five, when the phrase getting a little action means your prune juice is working. I, I had the same reaction this week when I read them. Forgive me. It was hilarious. Number six, you know you're getting older when, as you're picking up items on the floor, I can relate to this one, as when you're picking up items on the floor, you ask, is there anything else I can do while I'm down here? If you fall into that category, you are a gem. You are a jewel, and we love you, and we need you here in the body of Christ. We, look, you, you, we, we can't do it without you. We can't do it without you. But let's get back to it. Verse 2. Verse 2, he says, older men. Uh, older men, first he says, are to be temperate and dignified. What does that mean, Pastor David? That means that the older men are to, be, uh, to live and have self-control. The older men are to live above reproach. Why? Because you're the older men. And you set the example for the body of Christ. The younger generation is looking to the older generation. Then he says you're to be, continuing in verse 2, you're to be sensible. Sensible means uh, you think clearly. You're sober-minded. Uh, you have a biblical worldview. You know, so many times in life, you know, we, we act before we think. And it needs to be the other way around. We need to think before we act. It would save a lot of heartache. It would save a lot of hurt. He continues in verse 2, he says, sound in the faith. Older men are called to be sound in the faith. They're, they're called to be solid in what they believe. Be unmoved by the culture. Unmoved by the world. But standing firm on the word of God. That's where we need our older men. Our older men need to be sound in faith. And also they need to be sound in love. You know, older men need to be the examples of, of loving their wives. And loving their families. And loving their children. They need to be the examples of showing us how to love God. You know, that's very, very important for our older men. In perseverance, older men need to lead the way in what? Staying the course, persevering through the hard times, enjoying the good times, but staying the course and persevering. Guys, this is grace, okay? Grace changes. Let me just... Stop here for a moment as we're going through these qualifications because sometimes people can read this and like, oh, this is, you're getting legalistic. Or you're telling me how to live and how not to live. No, I'm not. I'm telling you, this is what grace does. This is what grace does. Grace comes in and, and the Holy Spirit comes in and causes us to be born again. We live this new life. And out of that inner birth of grace, God's grace working in our heart and the Holy Spirit coming in, he changes the way we live. He changes the way we live. This is huge. Remember what he's, this is very important to study in context. Remember what he talked about in chapter one. 
Chapter 1, these were the, de the deplorables. These were the wretched. These, these were the liars and these people coming into church and they were false teachers. And, and, Paul, and Paul said in chapter 1, bring the thunder, preach the gospel, let the Holy Spirit do his work, and then let the work continue. And then look at verse 3, our older ladies. Boy, do we love our older women. We're very thankful for you. We're very thankful for your influence on the church, and, and we love you guys greatly. But he says there in verse 3, older women, um, likewise. Now, in verse 3 and verse 6, Paul uses this phrase, likewise. What does that mean? That means that these cross over. These cross over. So it's not like, okay, here's the checklist for older men, and there's a different checklist for younger men. A lot of these cross over back and forth between uh, older men, older women, younger women, younger men. But he, he says, older women likewise are to be reverent. What does it say in verse 3? They're to be reverent in their behavior. Reverent in their behavior means that they're committed to Christ. They're committed to Christ Jesus with all their heart. And it just happens naturally. The example that they live follows what's taken place inside their heart. And they're reverent in their behavior. You can look and say, man, she's a follower of Christ. She's a follower of Christ. Not, not being legalistic and not necessarily in her appearance. Because I think there's been an overemphasis of put, you know, what women can wear and what women can't wear. And makeup and no makeup, jewelry, no jewelry. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think what he's talking about is in the example that they live. And the things that they put their hands to. In the way they serve the children, the way they serve their neighbors, the way they serve people, and, and reverent in their behavior, the way they live follows their faith in Christ. So this is what grace teaches our older ladies. The next one is um, they're not malicious gossips, meaning grace transforms our hearts, transforms the ladies' hearts, and I hope it transforms the men's hearts also. But we don't hurt other people with our words. We, we use our tongue wisely to encourage people, to challenge people, to hold people accountable, yes, but to speak words of grace and truth. The Greek word here in, in this verse where it says malicious gossips, is, uh, some of your translations say slanderer, is diablos. And it's the same New Testament word that's used for Satan. How interesting is that? You know, Satan seeks to kill, steal, and destroy, tear people down, to wreck people. And what, what, what Paul is saying here is, don't be like Satan. Don't tear people down, but build them up. Amen? Amen. Amen. Continuing in verse 3, he says, not enslaved to much wine. What's he saying there? He's saying, ladies, don't be enslaved to anything. Don't let nothing master you. Okay? There's only one, you have one master that you should submit to. And that master is the Lord Jesus Christ. And let him control your emotions. Let him control the things that you put in your body. And let nothing hold you. Some people let alcohol control them. Some people let drugs. Some people let um, food. There's all kinds of things that you could put in the place there. But be surrendered to your master, your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let grace come in and change your life. Let the Holy Spirit come in and do his work. And then it says uh, in verse 3, as we move into verse 4, it says, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women. 
Wow. Wow. Ladies, grace teaches you, older ladies, to disciple the younger ladies, to be that example, to be that shining example to others. You know, um, I love it when I see a visitor come in and, and they have a little Jesus, little Jesus um, sewn on thing. I know who they've come in contact with. They've come in contact with Grandma. They've come and talked to Grandma. But, but older ladies are called to teach other, the younger generation of ladies and to be an example and, and, to, and, to be a, and to be into discipleship and discipling others to follow Christ. This is what grace teaches our older ladies. And then he continues uh, in what they can, what they can teach them, how they can lead them. And he, now he transitions in verse 4 to, our, to younger women. Look at, look at verse 4, halfway through verse 4. He says, So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and love their children. There's nothing more than a young family needs than to have this solid foundation established in the very beginning. And that is, for, in talking about it to young ladies, what this text is saying is how to love your husband how to love your children, how, how, to, how to love your family. That's very important. And they should learn that, one, from the scriptures, from the Holy Spirit operating in their life and teaching them how to love their families, but also, in addition to those two examples, um, the older women, the older women, to be an example, to teach them how to love their families. Verse 5, grace teaches the, the younger women to be sensible, to be pure. That means they think clearly. They're sober-minded. We saw this in the requirement for the older men in the last verse. A lot of these cross over back and forth. But they're to be sensible, to think clearly, to be sober-minded. You know, I think about the mind when I think about being sensible. You know, to have a, a biblical worldview, to, to live in purity, to to. to to endeavor in their life to walk in holiness and to keep themselves separate from sin and separate from the ways of the world. That's what it means to be sensible and be pure. And then in verse 5 it says, workers at home. I mean, remember I told you about the 30, 30, 30 points of how grace impacts? This is what I'm talking about. There's so many of them. But verse 5 he says, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored, subject to their own husbands. You know, God has structure for the family. God has structure for the family. And, and the scripture says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. That word submit simply means it's been twisted by the culture. And, it, and it, sometimes it conveys a negative connotation, but it's not. What it simply means is this. Let your husband be the leader. Let your husband be the leader. And vice versa, men. Wives give their husbands what they need most, which is respect. And on the flip side of that, husbands give wives what they need most, and that's love. When the scripture says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did, how did he love the church? He laid his life down. He, he laid his life down at Calvary for the body of Christ. Men, husbands, you and I are called to love our wives in the same way. And when you love your wife like Christ loves the church, she's going to submit to you because she's got her hero. 
She's got her leader. She's got her man. So God creates this structure within the family that produces the ultimate chemistry that makes the bond of marriage so strong. That's what it does. And that's, that's the impact of grace in the church. That's the impact of grace in the lives of our families and our wives. That's so important. And then he says, in, um, let's continue in verse, I believe we're in verse 6. Verse 6 says, he, he, he's transitioning. There's that word again, verse 6. It starts off with likewise. Or in some of your translations, it says, in the same manner. But likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. We talked about that with the women. What does sensible mean? It, it means to think clearly. It means to have a sober mind. It means to have a biblical worldview. It means to think um, before you act. So we're all called to do that. We're all called to be sensible and to think clearly before we make big decisions. You know, uh, whenever I'm making a big decision in life uh, about the things I'm going to do, one, I pray. I, I, I seek the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit to show me and give me an answer. But then secondly, I go to my greatest advisor. You know who my greatest advisor is? My wife. My wife. You know, my wife is, is my is my greatest coach. I'm her greatest coach. My children, they know who their greatest coach is, is mom and dad. But I, get, I always get my very best advice, and it's not what I always want to hear. But I get it from my wife, we, and we get it from each other. Verse 7. Verse 7. In all things, show yourself to be an example in good deeds and with purity of doctrine. Again, Paul here is telling Titus, there on the island of Crete, he's establishing the church, and he's, he's saying, um, be an example of good deeds with purity of doctrine. Now, Paul understood the power of the Spirit, and he understood this New Testament doctrine of grace. And he understood that one of the works of grace within every single believer, not just the pastor, is this. He will love the Word. He will love to study his Bible. He will love to get into it. Not just at church, but at home on a daily basis. He loves to just meditate on scriptures and, and, and look to see what the word says and grow from that. That's very important in every believer's life. But I believe what he says there at the very end of verse 7, he says, with purity of doctrine. You know, a Christian wants no flub. He wants no... Uh, wishy-washy teaching, no seeker-sensitive teaching. Man, just give me what the Bible says. Just tell me what the Word of God says. That's my only thing. You know, I remember 10 or 12 years ago, me and Irene were looking for a church. And, you know, it takes a lot for young parents with young children to get to church. You know, you got to get them up in the morning. you got to get breakfast down the throat, slap the diapers on, get them all dressed up, and get to church. And it's a lot of work. And my only request in my heart, my only requirement in my heart as we were looking for a church is, Pastor, just open your Bible. You can teach on Genesis. You can teach on Leviticus. You can teach on Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Revelation. But just open the Bible and teach it to me. You know, I, I, I'm staking my eternity on, on, on what you're teaching and what you're saying from the pulpit because people accept what the pastor says. That's why it's very important that they teach the Word. And, and, and here in verse 7, 
purity and doctrine, man. Just, just give it to me what it says. Just, just let, it, let, let, let the lion out the cage and let me learn from Scripture, from God's Word. So that's what grace teaches us, to love the Word. And then he says, uh, and, and dignified. We talked about that one earlier with the older women. Verse 8, he says, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that opponents will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. In other words, you have to live it, you have to believe it, and one of the reasons we live it and believe it is so that the world will see us and they'll see Christ in us. But when they see a Christian compromising or they see a Christian living in the worldly ways, it makes them question faith in God. That's what it does. And we can't, we can't be that way. We can't let opponents of the gospel see stuff in our lives that brings shame to the gospel or that brings shame to Christ Jesus. The, the apostles' point in, in, in all these verses, in verses 1 through 8, the apostles' point is this. Grace changes everything. Grace changes everything in the way you live. It's more than just understanding the doctrines of grace and and understanding, okay, this is what grace is, this, and this is, I'm saved by grace. But when grace truly comes into your life, it changes the way you live. It changes the way the church operates. We go from being them lazy, glutton cretins to a people called out for his own choice. To a people called out. Then he continues in verse 9. Verse 9, you know, grace goes to your work. Grace affects the way... You work and where, where, where you go Monday through Friday. Look at verse 9. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. Bond slaves in the New Testament. They were slaves that were indentured to people because of their debt. They, they were, because of their debt, they had to work it off. And the, uh, how many of you guys got debt? Does anybody have, people have debt? How many of you guys go to work to pay off that debt? Well, guess what? You and I are bond slaves. You and I are bond slaves. And we have to, in other words, we're an employer. We're an employer. And when we go to work, we, the first thing it says there is we need to be subject to our own masters and everything. In other words, we need to do what the boss says, you know, short of telling us to be dishonest or telling us to, to sin against God. We need to do what the boss says. We need to please our supervisors. He says to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. You know, there's a reason why they're the boss and you're not. Because they're in charge. And if it's not done right, and they call it, it's not on you, it's on them. But we, know, we don't need to be argumentative. We need to submit to our leaders and our work. Verse 10, it says, not pilfering. You know, we don't steal. We don't steal from the boss. We don't steal from our work. But showing all good faith. I love that phrase. But showing all good faith. That, that means at work, we do our very best to represent Christ Jesus. We do our very best to show our boss and to show the people we work with that we're a follower of Jesus. And grace didn't just, doesn't just impact us on Sunday morning, but it impacts us every day. So showing all good faith that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. I love that phrase. They will adorn, they, talking about the people that witness you at work, um, your employees see you as a follower of Christ and you live in faithful. It says they, not you, verse 10 says, they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. 
You go back and look at verse 5, he ends it with a similar phrase. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. What's he saying there, Pastor? What he's saying there is, is when you live for Christ and you live the example, it will make them interested in Christ. They'll be like, so this Jesus changed you by the way you live. I'm curious about this. So, that, so basically what they're saying is, so that Bible really does work. Yes, it does. It does. The Bible does work. The Holy Spirit does work. Grace does work. And when we live it, we are adorning the doctrine of God. We're saying that it does what it says it will do, and God will be faithful. Amen? Amen. Verse 11. Okay, y'all know Pastor David. I I like sermon points. I like to give you some notes to take, to go home, and I give you four or five points of every message of every chapter. Well, here in verses 11 through 15 are the top four impacts of grace. We just talked about 20. Roughly, we just talked about 20 ways that grace impacts our life. And I would say that those are, uh, what is that, Um, verses, those are 25 through number 5. Now let's look at the top four ways grace impacts us. The first one is found in verse 11. Please turn your attention, look at verse 11 in your Bible. It says, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. The first thing, the first impact of grace before all other is this. Grace takes you to the cross. Grace takes you to the cross. You know, we find our glory, folks. As a believer and as a Christian, we, you find your glory and the power of the cross. What does that mean you find your glory in the power of the cross? You find your celebration in the cross. You find your joy in the cross. Because it's at the cross that you were forgiven. It's at the cross that you were set free. It's at the cross that you were given this new life. And so we find our glory there. Not that we're glorying in ourselves, but that we're glorying in him. And we're glorying in his power. We f- That's one of the, one of the ways. We, we find our strength. We find our strength. In the power of the cross. You know, life throws us curveballs. Tragedy strikes. We just had a major one here this week that I I wept over, and I was like, it it hurt. It it hurt deep to see what happened to that young lady. It hurt. I can't can't go there because I got to continue teaching. But that hurts us. It hurts our hearts to see tragedy. To see tragedy strike our community. Where do we find our hope? Where where do we find our hope in those difficult situations? When when we can't get our minds wrapped around something so evil. We find our strength at the cross. We find our strength in the power of the cross. Knowing that that little girl may have suffered, but now she's in the arms of Jesus. That, That gives us hope. But going back to my first point, grace takes us to the cross. Believers, brothers and sisters, your life is hidden in the cross, in this life. It's like a shield around you. It's like a barrier. It's your banner, the cross. So that's the first thing that grace does for all of us. It takes us to the cross. The second one is found in the very next verse. Please look at verse 12. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. The second 
impact of grace in our lives is this, based on verse 12. Grace teaches you that you've got to live holy. That you've got to live holy. This idea that you can accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, experience grace, experience the Holy Spirit, and then just go out and live any way you want to in rebellion is not found in the Bible. It's not there. It's not there. A person receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They be, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and he transforms your life. He changes you. And what he does, he gives you a hunger for holiness. It starts there. The Holy, the Holy Spirit gives us this hunger for holiness. 1 Peter 1.16 says, Be holy, for I am holy. God calls his people living under, in, in, the, in the church age, live, to living under grace, living in the Spirit. He calls them to holiness. He calls them to holiness. We're called to run from sin. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.19 says, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. I, I should have put this up on the PowerPoint, but maybe write it off to the side, look at it later. It's 2 Timothy 2.19. Nevertheless, this is the firm foundation of God. It says it stands. It says it has the seal. That's talking about how firm and how solid this is. And, the, and that principle is this. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Is to abstain. We're called to run from it. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean you blow it here and there. But it means, in general, your life is heading in the right direction, and you're running from sin, and you're running to Christ. You know, we like to say, you know, we're filled with who? The Holy Spirit. Think about that first word in who we call the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Spirit. The Spirit of God makes us holy. He sanctifies us and puts us in a, a, a right relationship with God for, for good, but then He continues to, to sanctify us, to cause us to grow in holiness. That's one of the works of the Spirit in our life. He's, he teaches us to be holy, and He says there in verse 12 to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. You know, in other words, if, if for in order for you to deny ungodliness, that means that the ungodliness has to be there in front of you. So even as Christians, we struggle. We're in the fight. Uh, if you're a Christian, at some point in your week, you're going to face temptation. You know, we're not, we're not immune from temptations and we're not immune from things trying to entice us. But he says, deny it. To, to, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. You know, to run from it. If there's something... Uh, there's something this, that, that you have as a weakness, run from it. You know, go to, go, to the, go to the shoe store, get the best pair of new balances you can find, and run. Run. But grace teaches us to live holy. Let's look at the third one. It's found in verse 13. It says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Third impact these are the top four. The third impact of grace is grace tells you to look forward. Grace tells you to look forward. Look forward to what, Pastor David? Am I to look forward to cashing in and making some money? Am I to be, am I to be looking forward to a, a big home? Or, or, am I, or, or am I looking forward to a new job? Or who's in the office? No, that's not what it's talking about there. What does it say? We're looking forward to what? The blessed hope. The blessed hope. There is coming a day, my friends where the eastern sky is going to split. 
and people are coming up out of the graves. They're not going to be like zombies. They're going to have these new, glorified, eternal bodies. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is coming back to this earth. It's called the rapture. It's called the return of Christ, where he comes back for his bride. It's found in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. I'll read it to you. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, raptura, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. My friend, that is our blessed hope. Now, I want to have a, I, many of us, we want to have a good job. We want to make money. We want to take care of our family. Uh, we, want to have, we want to have good things in life. But ultimately, our ultimate hope is not found in this world. It's found in heaven. It's found in heaven where he will come again. That is the blessed hope. That was the blessed hope of the early church. That is the blessed hope of the church today is our Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. Come. And grace, going back to the message, grace gives you the joy of that blessed hope. Grace teaches you, the Spirit indwelling you teaches you Again, when we see tragedy, when we see bad things happen, you know what? This world is not my home. This world is not my home. And I'm looking forward to that perfect world where there'll be no sin, no temptation, no evil in the world. It will all be expunged. And that will happen after the blessed hope, after the Lord Jesus Christ comes back for his bride. That's the the blessed hope. Verse 14. 14 and 15. Who gave himself, number four comes from verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. The fourth principle I present to you this morning that grace teaches us is this. Grace teaches you are forgiven and that you belong to the Lord. Look at verse 14. It says, who gave himself for us. That's an interesting thought. To think when Christ was on this earth and he was going up to Calvary, he did it for you and I. And, 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 and Jesus, in his deity, in his omniscience, in, in who he was and is as God, he had you on his mind. He had you on his mind. And it says, he gave himself. That phrase, he gave himself, is a reference to Golgotha, to Calvary, where the Roman soldiers took him up on that hill and they crucified him and they nailed him to the cross. You know, they they thought they were stopping this insurrection, but they weren't. This was the ultimate act of God himself giving himself for you. For what reason? Continue in verse 14. To redeem. To redeem. That means to buy back. You know, we come into this world as wretched, deplorable sinners, under the control of Satan, living in darkness, heading for hell, and then God shows up. Then God shows up in our life. And what does he show us? He shows us grace. 
He shows us mercy. He shows us kindness. Not because of anything we've done, but because of who he is. That's his character. And that word redeem, that word redeem means to purchase back. How did he purchase you out of, from going to hell and living in darkness and living under the control of Satan? How did he purchase you back? The scripture says, with the precious blood of Christ. With the, with the precious blood that he shed at Calvary. By his death, he's redeemed us. He's bought us back. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Throughout all time, through all eternity, a sacrifice had to be made. It happened in the garden. It happened in ancient Israel. It happened there in the temple. It happened in the tabernacle when they were wandering. And it's still true for today. Our sacrifice has went to the hill of Calvary and, and, and made that great sacrifice so that we could be redeemed from, it says there, every lawless deed. 1 John 3, 4 says, sin is transgression of the law. When we break God's moral law, we're building up an account of sin that a holy God is going to hold, uh, was, was hold us accountable for. But then Jesus paid the fine and all those lawless deeds I've ever committed. And, you know, I like to say I'm the chief of sinners. When I look back at my past, I came to Christ when I was, when I was age 22. And I looked at all my sin. And I, it was lots. It was a ton of sin. In every category of the law, I was guilty. And he took it to Calvary. And he forgave me. What an amazing thing. But every lawless deed to purify. You know, grace, forgiveness, it purifies your soul. It purifies your soul. We love that feeling. We love that thought. It's like when you become clean. This purification, this cleansing. That's what God did, for you. God did in your soul and in your heart when you received him. He purified you. In other words, he made you white as snow. He gave you a clean heart, a clean conscience. That's what grace is. That's what forgiveness is. And, and, and then it's very important. Look at the next phrase in verse 14. And to purify. The NASB says, for himself. He did it for his glory. He did it for his glory. In other words, it was in accordance with his character. It was in, it was in accordance with his character and who he is. Yeah, he did it for us, and we're very thankful. But he did it because he was being uh, truthful to his attributes of being a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of love and a God of truth and a God of compassion. And then it says, for, for himself, a people of his own possessions. He takes the deplorables. He takes the sinners. He takes the wretches. Some of the most evil, vile, wicked people, which Pastor David is part, was part of. He takes them and he makes them his own possession. Just like he did there at the island of Crete. That, that Paul's making reference to these Cretans, these lazy gluttons, these liars, these evil people. He transforms them by grace. And then they become zealous for good deeds. That's what grace is, folks. That's what grace teaches us. It teaches us those things that are up on the screen. It takes us to the cross to live holy, to look forward. And it teaches you, you know, you can have assurance of salvation. If you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, in other words, you've come to a point where you said, God, I'm sorry for my sin. 
I repent, I turn away, I put my trust in you, then you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. And you have that assurance that you are forgiven and that you belong to God. Let's close it with verse 15. He says, very, this is, verse 15 is, is very important because it's, it's an authoritative statement on what was just said. You know, no verse is without meaning. No verse is without purpose. But this is like the icing on the cake. This is like, this is firm what I'm saying. Verse 15. These things speak and exhort and reprove with what? The NASB says, with all authority. With all authority. And let no one disregard you. What he's saying, you know, in this, in this chapter, I love it how he personified grace. He personified grace and said, grace will do these things in your life. But he says, these things speak, exhort, and reprove. So this morning at Calvary Chapel Irmo, I'm going to speak, exhort, and reprove. Because these things are true of grace. And one of the reasons I love the Calvary Chapel movement, and there's many things I love about the Calvary Chapel movement, in addition to the verse-by-verse teaching, is the emphasis on grace. We need to let people know that God is a God of grace. God is a, a God of grace. He's a God of compassion. You know, there's no such thing as a perfect Christian or a perfect person. That, that, but we're all under construction and we all need grace. In this chapter, I just presented to you over 25 ways grace changes everything. Let's let the Lord do his work in our lives. So we're going to close with a song. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to close with a song. Take this time in closing to ask the Lord, Lord, help me in the area of my life. I open my heart to grace. I open my heart to your Holy Spirit coming in and doing his work. Amen? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for grace. Thank you for grace. Grace is your unmerited favor. It's your love and your compassion and your truth that you show to us in in this walk of serving you and loving you. Lord, it, it begins with grace, it continues with grace, and it ends with grace. Lord, let these truths come home in our hearts cement them in our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen. Amen. We're going to close with a song. If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there'll be some prayer counselors up front. This, this is an opportunity for you to come forward and receive Jesus Christ. As your